You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. We built these ships, dredged these canals. In the San Francisco they never knew existed. This is our home. You two stick together. I always come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? parties. You can put on one of your plays. We can yell. It is this house. Our old house. That's not your old house and that's not your neighborhood. Hey, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to black man in San Francisco and the story is as follows. Jimmy and his best friend, Monty, try to reclaim the house built by Jimmy's grandfather, launching them on a poignant odyssey that connects them to their past, even as it tests their friendship and sense of belonging in the place they call home. The film is starring Jimmy Fails, Jonathan Majors, Danny Glover, Tishina Arnold, Rob Morgan, Mike Epps, Finn Whitrock, and Dora Birch. It is written and directed by Joe Talbot and co-written by Rob Richard. Join me for this podcast review. I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Cody Derricks. Hello. All right, everyone. So Last Black Man in San Francisco. This is one of those movies that I saw at Sundance, and I was so blown away by this movie. I felt truly like, you know, sometimes you feel at a film festival when you go in completely blind into something, you genuinely feel like you have discovered something special. This was a debut director, Joe Talbot, who I approached after the film's screening at Sundance, and I said to him, straight up, I need to get a picture with you, because I need to reflect years from now and say that I got this early before you became an iconic legend. (laughs) Because I genuinely feel that with the little things that he does with this movie, we are witnessing the birth of a true artist. And that doesn't just extend to Joe. That extends to other aspects of production. So enough from me there. Let's hear from the rest of you all. Let's see if you guys reciprocate. Josh Parm, what did you think of The Last Black Man in San Francisco? Well, going into this film, first of all, I had very high expectations. Hearing all the reviews out of Sundance and just seeing the trailer to it, I was really expecting to see something pretty miraculous which can always be a detriment when you walk into a film having expectations that high 
And I got to say that walking out of it, they were pretty much met. I really found this movie to be a really, not, not only just gorgeously photographed and, and executed, but I thought that its messages and its themes about, you know, how many cities go through this uh, gentrification process and what that means to its citizens. And I found all that to be so fascinating and interesting. And the performances are really good in it as well. And I was just really captivated by the film. I think it's a remarkable achievement. And yeah, definitely one of the best movies of the year. All right. All right. Cody, what about yourself? I similarly went in with very high expectations, not only from the festival buzz, but that trailer that A24 put out about two months ago was, I, I think I said it on the podcast when we reviewed it, but it like jumped up on my watch list just from that gorgeous trailer. And the good news is that the movie is a perfect, or the, rather the trailer is a perfect uh, summation of that tone and filmmaking style because it is present throughout the entire movie. And I was just ready to love it based on that. So the fact that the movie maintained that really just kind of made me fall in love with it. I completely agree about um, that the filmmaking is unbelievable. Like from start to finish, it is completely using every possible tool at its disposal. And it's you know amazing that this is a debut film. Uh, the story is beautiful and uh, it's almost like a fable practically uh, in the way that like it plays with um, it's never, it never dips into full magical realism, but there are moments of uh, like almost fairy tale esque logic and just imagery, which I really liked. And the performances are really what I was thinking the most about. I mean, Jonathan majors has given my best uh, actor performance of the year so far in this movie. And I really loved both of their characters and they just completely, imbued them with a sense of humanity but still with like interesting characterizations i really love this movie i want to talk about a couple of different things that you mentioned there cody actually as a starting off point and one thing that i want to maybe get out of the way because it sounds like we're all pretty high on this movie i want to actually just get a negative maybe out of the way first and then we could focus on the more positive elements of this movie um a negative element for me and you can agree or disagree if you feel this way. I actually thought maybe the weakest element of the movie was possibly its screenplay in the sense that I felt it was a little broken up at times and it wasn't the kind of strong narrative that kind of held your hand along through its story. It's definitely a movie that you feel and experience more than it's a story that's actually spelled out for you. And there were a lot of times during the dialogue scenes, especially where they're very slow and very methodical that I thought to myself, oh man, a more general audience is not going to respond that well to this, especially if you're not really necessarily into the craft of filmmaking. Um, overall, I found the screenplay uh, pretty fairly strong. Uh, I, I did think it did sag a little bit, especially towards the... Uh, what would probably be the end of the second act, uh, namely the the part of the movie that has to do with the actual title of the movie. That makes sense if you've seen the movie. Um, I <laughs> thought it kind of had a little bit of, um, I don't know, it, it did kind of take me out of it a tiny bit, but I also enjoyed what I was watching, if that makes sense. So I can't really complain too much. Well, I think like the themes and the thematic messages of the film weave their way through the story so, so much thanks to the visuals and, like I was saying before, uh, the feeling that they evoked. It almost came across like they were characters that 
when you when when you let me let me put it to you this way when you stop and think about it for a brief second the story is very simple on the surface level but if you dig deeper there's a lot that this movie is really touching upon and i think that that element shines shines through very very strong where on the surface level just as i said just from the perspective of general audiences i could totally see why certain people may not be as captivated by the story well, what yeah. i thought was a strong point from the screenplay was the characterization and the character voices every single character in this movie and it's not a, it's not a huge cast of characters but it's it's a solid dozen named characters i'd say they are all so specific and unique and you know exactly what they want and what they're going to do in any moment based on just like a few minutes of screen time. And even in the case of some characters like uh, Kofi, they can act in different ways scene to scene and it still makes sense for the character. And that's like a really smart alchemy of screenwriting, directing, and especially acting that is able, they're able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely say that the characterization of this film is really one of the strongest bits of it. I do think I would say that towards the end of the film there kind of seems to be this disruption of a particular rhythm that the movie's just working with and i think that once we do start to deal with the subject of the title of the movie for some reason it kind of feels like it's starting to juggle a lot of things at once and i think that's where the pacing kind of starts to slow down a bit for me and that world that i'm still really interested in being in suddenly kind of doesn't feel quite as like neatly put together as it does for most of the rest of the movie. And that's where I would kind of agree that it's in those sections towards the end that I'm still interested in what's going on, but I don't think the film has kind of as firm a grasp on how to communicate all of its ideas as it did in the earlier parts of the film. And just to be clear, just so we're all on the same page here, are we all referring to the play sequence in the third act? That's what I was talking about, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like where the plot almost gets in the way of the kind of uh, cyclical nature of the story up to that point. But I didn't hate it at the same time. It just was different and I didn't love it as much as the rest of the movie. But to your point, Cody, what really carried me through that aspect of the film was Jonathan Majors and how well he was performing during that sequence. And that's something that I really want to touch upon here is how strong, and I mean incredibly strong, the relationship, the friendship is portrayed on screen between Montgomery Allen and Jimmy Fails. It, it's actually one of the best portrayals of male friendship I can recall in some time because it's not so much that the screenplay is hitting you over the head with dialogue to reinforce that friendship, but it's their actions that are speaking louder than the words of the screenplay ever could. That is really, really selling the emotion of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And what is also very interesting about that friendship is that it is a lot more nuanced than I think any other movie would kind of give it credit for. It's Mm -hmm. not really just a relationship of like, oh, they knew each other since they were young and they're practically brothers. Like, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Like, they have this very intense bond with one another, but there is something also kind of missing between the two of them that neither of them can really fill within the other person. Well, I think think what that is, Josh, is that Montgomery has a home with Danny Glover, who plays his... I don't know if it's his father or if it's I think his he's grandfather. A grandfather a few times. Okay, yeah, I think gotcha. He's a grandfather. 
And I and Jimmy doesn't have that. Jimmy doesn't have a home. And that's the central theme of the film, obviously, is uh, there's no place like home, to quote Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and so I think that that's the thing that you're referring to there, maybe that uh, Jimmy is lacking. Yeah. Um, but then there's also like this kind of connectivity that Jimmy has with the city and with even this home that doesn't technically belong to him anymore. There's like this whole interaction that he has with his surroundings that I think Montgomery is also kind of missing in his own life. And that drives an emptiness that he's trying to fill as well. And it just creates this very interesting dynamic in their relationship that makes it so fascinating to watch unfold. Yeah. What I think is really striking about their connection is that Montgomery is somebody who unabashedly loves beauty in the world and you can tell that um jimmy also does but the world of masculinity doesn't always allow for that type of sensitivity and like pointedly the uh the almost greek chorus that's on the street corner for most of the movie whenever they that that kind of uh appreciation for beauty in the world is brought up in any way it's you know dismissed as feminist or fruity or whatever and Mm -hmm. you can tell that montgomery and jimmy made a connection in terms of their appreciation of like aesthetic, you know, uh, beauty. Again, I'll use that word three thousand times. No, no, no. That's perfectly apt because Joel Talbot really shines that through in the filmmaking. You really get a sense of that beauty. Yes, it's it's shining a spotlight on a city that not just the big houses and the you know the rich parts of town get the gorgeous shots. It's all parts of San Francisco and everybody in it. So like Jimmy came from the streets. And Montgomery has a job and he has a home and he's a little bit more adjusted. Obviously, he wears the uh, the jacket, right, that he wears throughout the movie to kind of show that he's uh, wearing clothes and is more um, – yeah, what's what I'm looking for here? Like he's more comfortable and safe within his environment. And Jimmy is riding his skateboard trying to get by and skate through life at the skin of his teeth and – there's always this potential chance that even though he strives for a better life for himself, that he could end up back on those streets. And possibly, uh, not to spoil anything here, but uh, like one of the people that he grew up with could end up dead. Yeah, yeah. and what what uh, you know connects them is also this appreciation for this house. You know, it's the one, not the only, but the predominant uh, – thing that Jimmy can point to with pride in his life and it's something that he knows Montgomery will appreciate and something that really bonds them. It's like a a personification, a a physical thing that kind of epitomizes their shared sensibilities in the world. Yeah. And the way that the way that that house is also just photographed and lived in with those uh, characters in it, you also just get a sense of how much that space connects them and how much it means to them as well the the way the light just shines through the windows there's such a vibrancy to that house i mean obviously it's this very old victorian kind of a house so there's like this grandeur element to it it almost feels like it's otherworldly for the rest of the environment that they're inhabiting and it feels fairy tale like at times yeah, when they're in the house, you can't even really hear anything that's outside of the house when they're in a major city, which is not realistic. But it it kind of just depicts the feeling you get from being in this type of, yeah, pointedly otherworldly house. Like when Jonathan Majors, uh, or rather Montgomery Allen, the character, says, yeah, I'll take the dining room as my room. I actually really – I mean that, that might play off as comedy to a certain extent, but it, at the same time, I, I really fully – bought into that because every single room 
And every element of that house was so striking and so beautiful in the way that it was uh, photographed by, I, I want to just pay mention here, cinematographer Adam Newport Barra, who, dear God, I want to see more work from this cinematographer. <laughs> I could totally understand why, even if, you know, Montgomery chose the freaking bathrobe, I would totally understand why he thought it was a great place to establish as his place of comfort. Yeah, because it also helps to establish that this entire location means so much. So there really isn't like any place that you can go to that isn't going to be filled with a sense of you know, aesthetic beauty to it because that's how the characters see it. You know, if it's even some little corner in the attic, that still means so much to them because this is a place that has a lot of significance to themselves and kind of to kind of the city um, just in generally as well and what it's going through and its changes. Now, I want to ask a question about that as it pertains to characterization. Uh, Jimmy Fails has a particular connection to this house because he feels that it's the kind of house that uh, his grandfather built. And I'm really curious to know, do you all feel that if that connection wasn't there, like if he felt that it wasn't built by his grandfather, or let's just even say it wasn't even that house. Let's just say it was any house. It could be a rundown, really terrible house. Do you feel that Jimmy would have the same connection to it as he does with this one? Because any place that he can call his own is home. Well, I think that having a uh, family connection to it obviously enhances uh, his own appreciation of it. But I think what it also does is present this idea that so long ago, these are houses that were available to many different kinds of people within the city. And as the years have gone on, those options have left those communities. And I think that there is an appreciation from Jimmy to want to hold on to that as long as he can, because it is a sign of things really drastically changing for so many people. And I mean, the film comments very heavily on the ideas of gentrification. And it's really like one of many films that seem to be talking about that subject right now. And that to me is what the house ultimately represents, this notion that these communities have been changing so rapidly and wanting to at least try to hold on to a little bit of it before it completely goes away. And that's really exemplified by Finn Roddick's character who plays this uh, real estate agent. And when Jimmy is trying to get the deeds to the house or even when Jimmy goes to the bank and he basically puts on his best presentation he possibly can and is really earnest. Even though he doesn't have a job, he tells them, you can give me your highest interest rate. You can do whatever you have to do. Please just give me the opportunity to live in this home. And they still say no to him. I, I think that speaks to a lot of what it is you're bringing up there, Josh. Yeah, that bank scene was one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it's like just such a raw reveal from a character just really trying to hold on to like the last little bit of this previous identity, even though he's willing to accept so many of the consequences that have forced so many people out of that location. I just thought that was a really brilliant scene. What do we think of Rob Morgan, uh, who I have to say, like in Mudbound uh, a few years ago, like he was just he was phenomenal. I also really, really love that he represents a like a path for Jimmy, as it were. 
Um, it's a less glamorous lifestyle, and it's one that is just filled with, I think, both uh, jadedness and regret. And if Jimmy does not strive for something better, and he just kind of falls into the trap, as it were, I think that that was really, really greatly personified by Rob Morgan in his portrayal as uh, James Sr. here. Right, because he presents as almost a... um uh, a two roads diverged possibility. You know, on one hand, there's this gorgeous house his grandfather owned, and then there's the uh, seeming it seemed like a hotel apartment that his father was in, and that's you know where he doesn't want to end up, but he knows very well it could happen if that's his only uh, availability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, but Rob Morgan, he's so good. Like just any anything that Rob Morgan does, he's like just so so great in it. And what is so interesting about his character to me is that. He, like you said, Matt, does have this kind of jaded uh, attitude about the world, but he also comes from a generation that has inherited that jadedness. You know, I have seen many people that behave like that who kind of look at the world and see it only as one particular way and will have seen it change and think that it's never going to change for the better going forward. And it very much limits them. And I thought that his portrayal of that type of person was. Uh, something that felt very genuine to me. And that kind of, I think, carries through with one of the other themes of this film, other than the theme of home, which is that uh, a message to Jimmy that he needs to believe within himself in order to have that better life is that you are more than one thing. You are more than the circumstances that you were born into. And I think his realization of that or coming to grips with that is actually one of the other themes of this story that really spoke to me on an emotional level that helped to really push this film forward as one of the more provocative and just honestly awe-inspiring movies I've seen this year because how like that's the kind of theme right there that when you think about you are more than one thing that's the kind of thing that if that if a film could communicate that, that to you as an audience member, that just fills you up with so many possibilities. Uh, and I, I think that that's what makes the film very strong at times. Yeah. And the, the concept of duality is present throughout the entire movie. You know, there's the like I just said, the dual possibilities of how his life could go up and uh, or end up. And there's the um, we see the character of Kofi react to the house in two different ways based on who he's interacting with. And uh Similarly, the kind of grand ethos of the movie, which is spoken later in the movie by Jimmy, is uh, you can't hate something unless you love it, which also similarly points to like a duality, how you're not you don't have to think just one thing about things. I would be remiss. I would be absolutely beside myself if I did not pay special mention to Emil Masseri. And I apologize if I'm not saying that correctly, but holy hot goddamn is that score not one of the best i have heard this year bar none i don't know how it could be top this year in my personal rankings it was invigorating and it's if nothing else i will be championing it until the end of the year for a nomination if nothing else from this movie i mean just the the opening scene practically the like overture if you will the movie where they're skateboarding through the city and that music is playing and it was it you got exactly what they were going through going for in portraying the city with the music and the camera work working in like perfect harmony i i loved it yeah that score is amazing it's the perfect combination of both something classical 
but also with a mix of a new kind of sound that it, it feels timeless. And when we get to the third act and I just hear the theme of the movie, that piano, boom, 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 boom. I'm just like, oh my God, like, you know, just strike the right chords into my emotions. Why don't you? Like, what is happening here? <laughs> you know? right, and it all kind of um, coalescing in the if you're going to San Francisco song moment. Oh my gosh. Where the, the, the backing track seemed to, I don't know if they wrote a new arrangement for the song, but it fit perfectly with the motif of the score up to that point. It was really gorgeous. And that's one of the, uh, one of the more underrated things about this movie as well is that the film is so much about obviously the theme of home, which we've touched upon here, but the film also does a really, really great job of the setting. Right, the setting of San Francisco, from its small, tight-knit communities to the housing, to the toxic water, to the bridge, to every single aspect that you could think of about San Francisco in the present day. As I said before, the filmmaking and the music has almost this tranquil quality about it that almost puts you like in a hypnotizing feeling that yes i understand this is set in contemporary modern times but there's also something about it that just feels classical and timeless and it touches something deep i feel inside of all of us that it almost can't be put into words i think if you really open yourself up to this movie and what it has to offer and you let it tap into that deep within inside you, there is a personal connection that can be made between the audience and the film that is just something that I don't even know if I could properly articulate to you guys what that was. All I know is that it's something personal between me and the movie. Well, what you just said about the melding of classical and timeless styles with a modern sensibility is what I really responded to from the movie on a whole. It's the filmmaking and the uh, just kind of the way it takes its time with the plot and the characterizations. It's very um, not old fashioned necessarily, but it's definitely not modern. But it 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 really was appropriate for a movie about two characters living in 2019, but who spend their time watching old movies, living in this old house, Mm -hmm. being surrounded by old memorabilia. It was a perfect summation and uh, again, personification of how they see the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. And another thing that I think helps this sort of like personal emotional connection that you can get out of this movie is also thematic in terms of its conversations about how cities are changing, because that's a conversation that not just San Francisco is going through. You know, we're all seeing the changes of that right now. And, you know, Cody being also in Chicago, I'm sure that you can attest to that, that that's happening currently in the city as we speak you know oh my god literally the street i moved into four years ago i've seen you know lululemon shops pop up in that in the four years i've lived there it's it's all over and it's insidious because it it, it's seemingly under the guise of bettering the neighborhood but and i've heard people say that like i i work with people in my neighborhood and I've heard people say to the effect of like, well, you know, I know I'm supposed to think gentrification is bad, but you know, I'm okay living in an area with less crime. And it's just this complete blindness to the actual insidious dangers of it. And yeah, like you said, it's everywhere. Yeah. And I think that for me, especially 
watching this film and seeing that play out had just such a particular resonance that even though it is in a, the film is talking about a different city, it's so applicable to so many other major cities that are going through very similar things. And to me, combined with the artistry of the filmmaking just makes it resonate so much more. Yeah, it's really uh, perfect for 2019 when so many people of um, all different minorities, but especially racial minorities, are feeling completely left behind by what the country is trying to push forward to do and prioritize. And this as almost an elegiac look at that is really, I think, a, a, a wonderful response to that in 2019. And it's amazing, too, because it's actually, when you get down to the core of it, just a really personal story about two friends uh, Jimmy Fails, as an actor, that's his name, Jimmy Fails, playing the character of Jimmy Fails. This is his story in many, many ways. Yeah, my audience kind of made a noise of, uh, oh, when his name popped up at the end and it was, you know, two names next to each other in the credits. Mm-hmm. Joe Talbot and Jimmy uh, grew up together as friends. And this is definitely a very, very personal story to both of them. And I almost wonder if a lot of the large themes that the film does touch upon were something that subconsciously made their way through into the film like they didn't necessarily intend for it but because they're just speaking from a really personal and honest place how can you not have that truth come through so i think that that's also one of the great miracles of the movie in that sort of way um i'd like to now at this point pass it off to final thoughts and uh, grades out of 10, we'll talk about the Oscar potential for this movie. Um, I'll pass it off to you first, Josh. Any final thoughts on The Last Black Man at San Francisco? Well, one thing that I would just mention, and it, it's sort of like dicey territory, but I do think it's worth mentioning even still, is that you know this is a movie that is very much focused in a particular perspective of this black community in San Francisco. And I do find it interesting that it's directed by a white man. And what I find most interesting, though, is it does, to me at least, didn't really come with that very removed perspective that you can sometimes find in films that are directed by people that are not directly involved in the communities that it's representing. And I think it's because there is just such an earnestness with this story that he has collaborated with Jimmy on, and I think that that really shows through. And it's very rare that you can find that in a type of movie like this, but I do think that it's another reason why Joe Talbot should be commended for his efforts. I, I think that it's a really uh, authentic portrayal that should be really appreciated. Yeah, I was completely surprised at my screening at Sundance earlier this year when they were like, oh, and introducing a director and writer to this film, Joe Talbot. And I was like, that's a white man. What? <laughs> I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I was definitely taking a step back on that. But uh, to your point, Josh, it only really highlighted how much of a skilled director he is. And also, too, the earnestness of the story, like you said. Yeah. That it's really coming from such a truthful and honest place. Which I'm sure is helped by that collaboration with Jimmy Fails and mm -hmm. making sure that the representation that is being presented here does actually feel authentic. And there's actually time uh, given to that to make sure that not only is this world beautiful in its artistry, but also feels real to those characters and the setting that they're in. And it really did feel like that everybody involved wanted to make sure that that representation was of the most importance when telling this story. 
Uh, Cody, I actually have a question for you before you get into yes. your final thoughts here. You know, you, you specifically did highlight Jonathan Majors as the standout performance within the film. Uh, did you have issues with Jimmy Fails' performance or? Um, no, 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 no. Oh, OK. I was just curious. No, I, I just just Jonathan Majors. Uh, they both were phenomenal. But Jonathan Majors really. I mean, he's he's he, he has the. um benefit of a character with like, I mean, I'm an actor myself and just if I, if I got a role like that where he's a character who's so fully lived in on paper and he has so many specific personality traits and interests and a really interesting arc. I mean, you are already (laughs) lucky as an actor when you get a role like that, but he, you know, works so hard to make him a believable character because it's so easy to look at the little affectations he has and the way he speaks to other characters. You know, there's one scene where he stops a altercation to almost direct them like a director. And it's a scene that comes off as like, it toes the line and even crosses into practically a parody of somebody who's like sees himself as uh, different than what's going on around them, but he makes it believable. And I've seen, you know, I've no, I've known people like this. Um, while we're on the subject, uh, Josh, let me know if you have any thoughts on this too. I was wondering if you uh, also got uh, sort of queer vibes from the character of Montgomery. Mm. Uh, what The reason I say that is because they pointedly are watching all these old movies in the movie itself, movie set, it seems like in the 40s or 50s, like detective type stories. And so the filmmakers are aware of the kind of the uh, the visual language and the uh, style of those types of movies in the time period. And if there was a character similar to Montgomery in those movies who is sort of literally theatrical and has these um, – the way he you know decorates his room and even behaves and wears the same clothes all the time – we would read that today as a coded queer character. And I was wondering if you had any other thoughts on that or if I'm just reading it into it too deep. I mean, that's how I view most art is through a queer lens myself. And this definitely jumped out to me. Uh, no, I don't think that you're like off base at all. That is exactly what I was thinking about with that character. And it's not just even the scenes where he's watching the old movies. I just even think like, the way that he was looking at that Greek chorus and especially how he interacted with uh, Kofi to me seemed very much like, you know, you could read a lot into what exactly he's interested in him for. And uh, like when he invites him over to the house, there is this sort of awkward energy between the two of them. Yes, that does, absolutely. It comes across a little bit like flirtation. And when he is kind of, then when Kofi is like getting this, more of a friendship with Jimmy later on, it feels a little bit like uh, a little bit like a, of an emotional betrayal to a certain extent. And I think that those are elements that certainly are not meant to say that this is all that this character is. But I right, think totally. that that is in, I think it is intentionally put in there that you could read that from that character, certainly. Right, because it's it's not a point of the movie sexuality in any way. It could just be he could just be a queer character living in the world, which is realistic you know people aren't that's not people's defining trait all the time no and i i have to say actually um it's funny you guys brought that up because i actually got that vibe too i almost thought at times that their friendship actually jimmy and montgomery was that of like an old married couple sometimes and i did wonder on occasion if montgomery had these feelings for jimmy that he's just never properly acted on 
before. I think it was less feelings and more he just saw a connection in terms of their sensibilities and appreciations in the world. Whether that means romantically or actual attraction-wise, I'm not quite sure, or I don't, I don't even know if it matters necessarily. No, and that's why I but said before, a, it's one of the yeah. best portrayals of on-screen friendship, right. if you want to just equate it to that, that I feel like I've ever seen before. It's just two men that love each other, whether you want to look at it sexually or asexually. And if one of your characters is queer, they're going to... in inherently have a more comfortability with that type of uh, even just friendship connection with somebody of the same gender. Mm -hmm. And it also influences just the way that they see the world and influences what they're interested in. Like for, for me, if you want to read that into Montgomery's character, to me that also informs why he's so interested in the world of that very hyper-masculine group of friends that's exactly. constantly on the sidelines of why he wants to probe into it and discuss it more. And yeah, yeah, that's why to me, it's one of those things that it's not necessary for the, for the character to have that perspective with him, but I think it influences and adds a lot more depth to everything that he does in that story. If you do want to read that into him, that's exactly what I got from it. Exactly. Isn't it great when a movie has layers? <laughs> <laughs> right and not everything is explicitly laid out nor does it have to be it just gives you another thing to think about and if you're willing to look at a movie in that way or if that's part of your experience it gives you one more thing to latch on to exactly i can't wait to latch on to this movie even more over the years because i've seen it twice now and i can't wait to watch it again <laughs> uh josh what grade would you give it uh I think I am going to land on an 8 out of 10 with this one. I, As much as we have been praising it, I do think that towards the end, it does feel a little bit overstuffed to me in terms of all the themes that it wants to work with. And it does lose me just a tiny bit there, but it's not enough for me to really discard everything else that the movie does well. And honestly, if I see it again, I might even go higher on it because I really do love a lot of what this movie is doing. So... Even as an 8 out of 10, to me, that is still like one of the best achievements of the year. Yeah. All right. Cody? Josh, I completely could have said exactly <laughs> everything you just said. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Uh, the things about it that I found a little bit off-putting is the wrong word, but it took me back a second in terms of like, oh, this isn't what I was hoping the story would do or what we do with this movie. But OK, I'll, t I'll go along with it. It was not enough to deride the beauty in the filmmaking and the care and affection from everybody involved in all aspects of this movie, which is so apparent on screen. And just like, I really respond to any time a movie shows care from those making it because in this age of, you know, churning out blockbusters, that's not always the case. So any movie that can show that automatically, it's a bump for me and extra points if it's good in every other aspect, which this movie truly is. So I'm, I'm also giving it an eight out of 10. Yeah. I'm giving it a very, very strong eight out of 10. I originally was a nine when I saw it at Sundance and obviously as time wears on and you realize how much of that is festival hype, um, you start mm -hmm. to realize, especially on a second viewing, uh, maybe some of the flaws of the film as I, uh, expressed before. And you guys have expressed, I think we're all in a complete alignment that the film in the third act does start to come undone just a tad bit because it is 
a little overstuffed in these themes, doesn't necessarily maybe know how to tie it all together. But I actually think that the film ends strong enough that there's no possible way I could give it anything less than an eight. I think it's one of the very best films of the year. It may not necessarily make my top 10, but damn if it was close as hell. And it's also a film that I will continue to revisit over and over again for its beauty, its vibrancy, and just the awe-inspiring filmmaking that is on display. And you could tell me, oh, there's an over-reliance on slow motion and the music and the cinematography to sell you on its expressive visual storytelling, and it's making up for flaws within the screenplay. Okay. <laughs> like, the world of filmmaking. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, okay, I, you want to make that I argument really, with me? <laughs> you know? I really loved the almost, like you said, overuse of, of slow motion. I mean, it's about... A city that moves quickly like any city, so it's giving you the chance to uh, stew in a moment of beauty or just even just general day-to-day life. I loved it. Yeah, same here. And in this world where we ourselves are watching over 200 movies a year or whatever it might be, and we're getting a lot of the same generic stuff that almost feels like it was manufactured in a lab, isn't it just so refreshing sometimes to see a movie that feels like it was not made necessarily before, but came from a singular voice, a distinct voice that actually has something to say? And I feel that Jonathan Majors, Jimmy Fails, Joe Talbot, and everybody else that was working on this movie all had something really to say. That comes through in every single aspect of this movie. I appreciate the hell out of that. So, heck yeah. Last Black Man in San Francisco is one of the best films of the year. Wholeheartedly recommend. It may not be for everybody. I fully admit to that. I can totally understand that if it's not your cup of tea. But I think that there is a lot like a like really a lot to chew on if you are willing to give yourself over to it. Do you guys have any Oscar prospects for it? Oof, man. You know, I was thinking about this a lot. It's tough. It I is know. so tough. You know what I was thinking the other day? So I was I was genuinely asking myself when I was going through the list of what it could contend for. In a lot of ways, Last Black Man in San Francisco reminds me of Blind Spotting last year. In that, obviously, they take they both take place within the uh, San Francisco area. They're both two independent films that debuted at Sundance. Both deal with uh, some similar themes in uh, some aspects. But one thing that Last Black Man in San Francisco has is that score. Because otherwise, what are we going to say? DGA debut and maybe some critics groups recognize the film and that's it? DJ debut, hopefully for sure, just like Blind Spotting last year. And I... I like I said, I'm going to do my <laughs> small part to make sure that this score is thought about, you know, in eight months when they're doing their nominating. It's I, I don't know how something could possibly, if not top it, if something could knock it, if five movies could possibly have a better score than this at the end of the year. Yeah, the only thing sometimes with the score category is they can be that yeah. branch at the Oscars can be very clicky and yeah. can sometimes not welcome the newcomers as frequently as they should. But sometimes if something is just like undeniable, they will make an exception. And I do think that depending on how the rest of the year shapes out, that's going to be a big question mark. But I think this score is strong enough to uh, stay in the conversation for as long as it can. And 
if it's the only thing that ends up making uh, the film an Oscar nominee, I think that would be appropriate because it that score is just so amazing and it does stand out as like one of the best assets that the film is using. Well, let me back up here for a second and let me just point out that some of the best scores I've heard this year are Apollo 11, which is probably not going to contend because it's a documentary and that's extremely rare. Us is going to get disqualified, most likely. Avengers Endgame by Alan Silvestri. Uh, Infinity War made the shortlist last year, so that is probably in contention. Yeah, I think that has more to do with Silvestri, though. Yeah, definitely. And, and like you said, like the club, right? Although Black Panther did just win an Oscar, so. Dark Phoenix is a, is a really great score by Hans Zimmer, but that film is tanking, so that's not going to go anywhere. No way. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. No way. <laughs> so when you really just take a step back and you ask yourself, any are there any film scores from the first half of the year that really can contend? Uh, it's really just Avengers Endgame and this. Yeah, because best score is one of those categories. It's not like costume design or makeup where your movie can be bad, but this one element is great and it still gets nominated. You generally have to... It's it's not very common that a movie's only nomination is best score, at least not anymore in the age of the expanded best picture lineup. Well, unless your name is Thomas Newman or John Williams. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All righty. Anybody have any final thoughts before we go? No, go see this in theaters, please. Give it money. Yes. Yes, with everything that is disappointing so far this summer, this one deserves your attention. Mm-hmm. I will echo that 100%. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Cody Derricks. You can find me all over the internet at CodyMonster91 and listen to my horror movie podcast, Halloweeners. We're at Halloweeners Pod. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The Last Black Man in San Francisco here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate us five stars. Leave us a comment. It helps for people to discover us. I cannot stress this enough how important this is. If you like the show, head on over there and just rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to Patreon. One dollar minimum a month can get you some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And we shall see you all next time.